This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 7th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hurricane Irma, 180 mile an hour winds ripping through the Caribbean. Irma damages 90% of the island of Barbuda, which is bad. And that's what Time said. But their sister publication drove it home by adding 90% of the island of Barbuda, including Robert De Niro's hotel. Was the eye of Hurricane Irma looking at him? It seems likely. Now, I don't want to diminish the terrible power of Irma. It has killed at least 10 people. But this whole destroyed nearly every building on Barbuda thing... Let me read from the Lonely Planet Guide to Barbuda. This was pre-Irma. When Gertrude Stein famously opined, there is no there there, she might have meant Barbuda. Here is the official description of Barbuda from a government website. Barbuda is one of those very few islands in the Caribbean that remains and probably will remain for some time so undeveloped as to seem positively deserted at times. And then it goes on to praise the frigate birds. Apparently the frigate birds are glorious. I hope they left before the hurricane. I'm not dismissing what happened to Barbuda, what's happening in the Caribbean. There was death there that, like I said, uh, at least 10 people dead. But when a tiny island is barely inhabited in the first place, the fact that the prime minister of the country calls it uninhabitable uh, calls out for context is all I am saying. Like, When a twister hits a town in Missouri or Oklahoma and destroys everything in its path, those buildings, those U.S. buildings were built to code. They were inspected. They were signed off on. They were made of top flight building material, foundations, well-trained contractors. So yeah, if a Category 5 hurricane hits a tiny village, which essentially was the only thing on Barbuda, that tiny village of 1,500 people will greatly suffer. But perhaps, and this is the thing about Irma that I've been hearing, and perhaps you've heard this too. Irma is so intense, it's setting off earthquake detectors. Hurricane Irma, currently barreling toward Florida, is so powerful that it's confusing seismographs into thinking it's an earthquake. There's a low-pitched hum showing up on instruments in Guadalupe, normally used to detect earthquakes. The pounding of waves and swaying of trees is sending genuine seismic energy through the island. This was reported everywhere. LA Times, Newsweek, USA Today, The Weather Channel. Here's the LA Times tweet, Hurricane Irma is so strong that it was detected by earthquake measuring equipment. That is true. It was. But here's what else is true. Big storms, not just hurricanes, just storms, gusts of wind are always detected by earthquake measuring equipment. I went back. I did some research. I read some old studies. In 1945, when hurricane warning technology wasn't what it is now, there was research into using the oft-observed phenomenon of high winds setting off seismometers to detect hurricanes. I'll read you some of this. Ground movements with periods of 4 to 16 seconds, known as microseisms, were associated with ocean waves and coastal surf and have been recorded continuously since the early days of seismology. From the period of 1954 to 1977, we detect an average of 7 days per month 
with strong micro seismic activity. Wind causes waves, waves hit shore, detectable. Trees, the roots vibrate, detectable. Wind causes trees to fall down. Every seismologist will tell you that their instruments pick that up. Here is a seismologist telling you that their instruments pick it up. It's fairly common. They will appear on seismograph records, but they're not earthquakes. That's John Mutter. He's going to be on elsewhere in the show. Talk about different things. But I happen to be talking to a seismologist, and I want you to hear it. So when the news channels hype this as an indication of the unique power of Irma, that's what it is. It's hype. It's not unique. In the original USA Today article, in fact, and that was the article that every other article and tweet cited, they quote one guy, Stephen Hicks, a postdoctoral research fellow in passive source seismology at the University of Southampton. And he says in the piece, it's not unusual for large storms to register on seismometers. So this is category five alarmism. But this is what the media does. Their agenda is, you know, to hype storms. I'm sure they, to some extent, believe it. Let's put it out there. People definitely click on it. But it's a different thing when politicians or political figures go there. Here is Eric Solheim in a tweet. Hurricane Irma is so powerful, it's showing up on scales used for measuring earthquakes. The scientists warned us. Eric Solheim is executive director of the United Nations Environment Program. He is right. The scientists warned us. They were seismologists. They warned us, yeah, this always happens. So I ask you, did this particular bit of wind serve to advance our understanding of science or retard it? Is freaking out about a common occurrence an example of combating climate change ignorance? Or does it give solace to other sorts of ignorance? With this actually bad, actually huge, actually deadly hurricane bearing down on the U.S., do we really need more bluster? On the show today, we'll spiel about Donald Trump's strategic deal wizardry. Maybe it won't be the longest spiel in the world. But first, okay, so I teased you with seismologist John Mutter. Guess what? He just happens to be a seismologist. He really is the go-to expert in counting the dead after a hurricane. And the death toll from Harvey seems low, remarkably low. Dr. Mutter says so himself. But to get there and to ask why it's low, what we're going to do is take you through the death toll from Hurricane Katrina, try to figure out why it was so outrageously high. We'll also talk about detailing just how they calculate the death toll overall. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So as of today, the official death toll from all the areas affected by Hurricane Harvey stands at 70, could go up, has been inching, and I do mean inching up day by day. These are people who drowned, got crushed by trees, died during power outages. This death toll, the low, relatively low death toll, is astounding, uh, according to some news reports. But my question is, how do they compute it, and why is it in fact so low as compared to something like Katrina? There's no better person to talk to than John Mutter. He's a professor at Columbia University who I 
First of all, I want to say hello and welcome, Professor Mutter. Oh, hi. Usually in this space, I say he is a professor of, but this alone is very interesting. You're at an intersection of two departments that I've not seen before. What are you a professor of? <clears throat> so I'm appointed in uh, Earth and Envi Environmental Sciences. So I'm a professor of Earth and Environmental Science. I'm a, actually a seismologist. I study earthquakes and such. And I'm also appointed in the School of International and Public Affairs, which is the policy school at Columbia. And with those two appointments, you are someone who has led the way on counting the dead in a disaster like a hurricane. How did this uh, task, this perhaps grim task, come to you? So I was fairly conversant with, on an international scale, relatively poor countries. You're, you're used to hearing about very large death tolls. So cyclone will come ashore in Bangladesh and you get numbers in the tens of thousands. Whereas a similar, geophysically similar event will hit the US or other places and you get a very small death toll. So wealth tends to help you resist everything like that. And it's partly just because we build stronger structures. Right? Yeah, we have, we, we have building codes that alone will save a lot of lives. It seems like we have better warning systems and also evacuation procedures. Mm -hmm. All of that combines. So there's a very clear inverse relationship. Poor country, you'll see a lot of deaths, but a relatively small financial loss because structures aren't valued very high. And for us, it's the other way around. Yeah. An enormous capital losses, small human losses. Okay, go back to Katrina. And even in the early days of Katrina, they're talking about 2000 or something like that. 2000 is a poor world number. It's not a rich world number. It's ridiculous that in this day and age, in our country, something of the order of 2000 people died in a major US city in a hurricane. So when you started hearing the estimates of Katrina, were you, did you have expertise already in counting deaths from hurricanes? I, I knew how people go about it. Mm -hmm. And I had some colleagues who had been involved in an even more difficult task, which is counting mortality from um, civil conflict, you know, from wars, yeah. where the winners always exaggerate the losses among the the loser and vice versa, you know, and that's true in natural disasters too. Poor countries have a way of exaggerating numbers because they, they receive more donations. People are sympathetic to high death tolls, not yes. high capital losses. And also in conflict, in unlike a hurricane where there's no enemy, in war it sometimes serves political purposes to exaggerate the devastation your side has Exactly, endured. yeah. And diminish it. So in a rich country, it's sort of embarrassing to yes. have a very large death toll. So in rich countries, they tend to get all very accurate about it and say, well, the person had to have died on the day of the event, or perhaps one day later, but yeah. not three days later. And it has to be a certain suite of causes. You know, obviously drowning in uh, an event like Katrina is an obvious thing. But, you know, what if somebody died from a heart attack and had a previous heart condition? You know, are they dying just because they got roughed around? Is that a disaster death? 
Well, uh, you know, a, a prosecutor would bring murder charges for someone who was in the commission of a crime, had a heart attack. For absolutely, instance. absolutely, and that's the way it ought to be. In some people, some people will count all of those. Yeah, and some people, because there's no standards, will say, no, 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 that's that's just somebody who died anyway. So as you delved into Katrina, you found that there was no standard and you had no, to... No, there's no standard. So you had, did you concoct a standard? I shouldn't say concoct. Did you invent a standard? Uh, I, I tried to be as comprehensive as possible. Yeah. If you could say to yourself, would this person not have died on that day were it not for the hurricane, the earthquake, then you count them. Total excess death rather than worrying about exact causes. Right. And so this could mean it's someone who evacuated and was living in Houston for a week, but then didn't have her medication and died. Right. Or, for instance, um, older people always want to return. Yeah. Younger people are willing to say, oh, hell, you know, I don't have a job anymore. You know, here I am in Atlanta. It's not so bad here. Uh, let me try to get a job. And, you know, there'll be it's a forced displacement, but not one that's horrible. But older people want to come back. They don't have that sort of choice. And if they find they don't have anything to come back to and their prospects look like, you know, living in a shelter for the rest of their lives, it can be very demoralizing. You know, they can practically die of sadness. And there's any number of instances from family members who say their elderly relatives died you know, some weeks afterwards, and there's no doubt in their mind that it's it's linked to the disaster. Well, I'm sympathetic, but I think there is a difference between dying literally of a heart attack and dying of a broken heart. Did yeah. you note that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wanted to be as comprehensive as, yeah. as possible, you know, and just to make sure that we really know what the overall impact on humans is of these events. And not some clinical definition of, okay, if your death certificate reads this, mm -hmm. you're counted. If it reads this, you're not. What about the fact that in any metropolitan area, there are going to be some people on a very nice Tuesday who are going to fall over dead? Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you norm for that? You norm for it. What you try to find is you, you go back through the historical records, and exactly as you say, you look at the the daily death tolls or weekly death tolls, and you look at that for, you know, the date of the event, and it will average out to something. And what you'll find is on the, the day of the event, it's much larger. So it's it's excess deaths. So yes, you, you compensate for that. Now, when I just entered the term Katrina death toll and hit return in Google, this number comes up. 1,833. Yeah, that's what you keep hearing. Is that your number? No. Where, what's no. that number from? That's from the officials, <laughs> yeah. whoever they are. Now, it's the people who do a good but conservative job, are the Center for Disease Control. It falls to them to make an estimation, but they're very, very strict in what they regard as a disaster death. But 18-something is... A number that I think cuts off three days after the event. Anybody who dies beyond that is not counted. So the real number is closer to 2,000. Why was Katrina 
Why did it act like it was happening to a poor country? Is it an example of a poor city in a rich country? It happened to the poor people in a rich city. There's areas of um, very concentrated poverty in New Orleans. There's city blocks, I mean, suburban blocks where everybody's unemployed. Uh, Everybody's, you know, way below uh, minimum uh, average poverty levels. You know, marginal people live in marginal places. So they're there in the lowest part of the, the city near these enormous levees that are industrial levees holding back the waters of commercial canals for shipping and they broke and the people nearest to the overtopping or the breakages were the people who got it worst and that was the poor people it's the same way that we put you know garbage incinerators in poor places around new york because you know they don't have a voice So it's a combination of the number of poor people, but also the geography of New Orleans. Houston doesn't have the same pervasive poverty problem, but as the fourth biggest city in the United States, it does have half a million residents who are below the federal poverty line. That is much, much more than New Orleans, but it's where they lived, you're saying. It's it's where they lived. The concentration of them near to very hazardous areas. Katrina, a storm surge came ashore came up the canals, broke the levees, and what flooded the areas was seawater, right? Water from the ocean. Yes. The concern with Houston was very different from New Orleans. Houston, as you say, is spread out. It's relatively flat, and it it rained prodigiously. That didn't happen in Katrina. So there isn't as much uh, sort of dynamic losses as you see when a levee breaks and an enormous amount of water just gushes in. And so the images seem the same, uh, boats rowing up to houses, but what we're not seeing and what we didn't see in Katrina are the bodies inside the fully submerged houses. The images are going to look the same because that's what we can get images of. Right. Yeah. One small interesting thing is that they're using drones to get some of these images in Houston and in New Orleans, of course, Drones weren't drones were in their infancy at that time, so even assessing what uh, had happened in New Orleans was harder. But when these uh, floodwaters recede and rescuers can get into some of these places, do you expect a number spike? We saw that. I mean, if you map out when the numbers are reported, there is a spike in a couple days. So, what do you expect to happen? Same sort of thing, but it it seems to me the the, the only things that could happen from now would be to find bodies that haven't been found before. And surely there will be some, but not a huge amount. Right. And so this means that Hurricane Rita, which didn't really hit Houston, but the evacuation killed 130 people, including a bus explosion, will have been more deadly than than Hurricane Harvey for Houston. That's the way it would seem right now. And so that, that will say something to the people who debated evacuation. Yep. Um, The AP has a headline today, relatively low Harvey death toll is, quote, astounding to experts. And they've got that quote from a gentleman by the name of Phil Bediant, co-director of Rice University, effort to research severe storms and evacuations. It was astounding we didn't have a much larger loss of life. Would you agree with that, that it's astounding? I think, you know, three cheers for Houston and and Houstonites. Yeah. It sounds callous, but 60 
is not bad. You know, think of the number of people that were affected. Millions of people were affected in that area, and only 60 died. 60, 70, whatever so, it is. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's astonishing. Yep. Given the number of people who experienced storm winds and flooding, that's amazing. John Mutter is a professor at Columbia University's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences and also in the School of International and Public Affairs. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Now, I am not a great negotiator, though I did wrangle a slightly less squeaky chair. Thanks, Julia. But let me ask you this. Might it be the case that we'll only know if a negotiator is brilliant after the fact, that he seems crazy and giving away the whole shop, and then we'll look and we'll say, oh my God, look at this little clause in the contract. That guy was brilliant all along. I ask you because that seems to be the only way to answer the question, what the hell is Donald Trump doing? I don't mean like, what the hell? This guy's travel ban is unconscionable. What the hell is he doing? And I don't mean you're looking directly into the sun during an eclipse. What the hell are you doing? And I also don't mean, why do you keep saying you lowered the price of those fighter jets? What the hell are you doing? I mean, let's say you're a super Trump fan and you really want the guy to succeed. How are you not asking, what the hell are you doing? We remember he said the fire and fury statement, but the fire and fury stood out because of the words, but the phrase directly preceding fire and fury was this, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. So he wasn't just saying they must not attack us. He wasn't saying here is my red line. He's saying they must not make any more threats. For about a week, it was going okay. And now it's not. So he just ridiculously painted himself into a corner with that. 
And now he's calling South Korea appeasers at this moment, at this very moment when you need them the most. And also he tweets that the U.S. is considering sanctions and stopping all trade with nations who trade with North Korea. This is bad strategy. But to demonstrate how bad a strategy it is, I first have to really underline how idiotic a statement this is. North Korea's GDP is $17 billion. They're nothing. But if we were to stop trade with everyone who trades with North Korea, we'd be stopping trade with China. And U.S.-China trade is $600 billion, okay? So North Korea's GDP is less than the GDP of the state of Vermont. But if we were to say, okay, we're not trading with China anymore, it would be like taking the states of West Virginia, Delaware, Idaho, Rhode Island, Maine, Alaska, North Dakota, Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming, and Vermont out of the U.S. economy, just throwing them out. That's the amount of trade we do with China. So threatening it, such an empty threat, just sets you up as the guy who makes empty threats. Now on to another nuclear state, Iran. Trump doesn't like our deal. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley was saying, you know, next time it comes for uh, President Trump to certify the deal, he might not do it, which would lead you to believe, oh, we're going to be reimposing sanctions? No, she said. He might not recertify the Iran nuclear deal, but then we'll leave it up to Congress to decide whether they want to reimpose sanctions. What? Who did this serve? How does this get him or United States strategy anywhere? It just seems to be protecting his ego. As in, I followed through on a campaign promise. Whatever happens after that, I don't know. Which is exactly like DACA. So he sends Jeff Sessions out there, says we're canceling DACA. But then within hours, he undercuts that saying, if Congress can't fix this in six months, he'll revisit it. Well, there goes all your leverage with Congress. And just today, he said, for those, DACA, that should be who, are concerned about your status during the six-month period, you have nothing to worry about. No action. You know, on South Korea, he sometimes says, I'm acting like the crazy man, which, by the way, a crazy man wouldn't want to acknowledge out loud, but I'm acting like the madman. It's the madman theory of foreign policy. The madman theory, or the guy who sticks to his guns, is a theory of all negotiation, and Donald Trump seems not able to do that. He needs to be loved in every single instance. He's giving away his leverage. Now, contrast what he did there with how the Democrats played the debt ceiling. You know, the Democrats don't really want a debt ceiling. Do you really think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer would say, fine, if it comes to that, the United States will default on its debt, will ruin our credit, it will cause spiking interest rates. They'd never do it. But no one even questions. They went to the president. They said, we're only going to have a deal in three months to raise the debt ceiling. We don't want to sign off on a long-term plan to raise the debt ceiling. In their heart of hearts, they actually believe there should be no debt ceiling. It's the prudent policy, by the way. But they're using the leverage they have to say, we're going to get concessions out of you. Everyone believes them because they stick to their guns. And guess what? They just got the concessions. From who? Oh yeah, Donald Trump. Ben Smith of Politico says that Donald Trump is shooting all his hostages. I mean, he came into office and inherited DACA, the Iran deal, the Paris Accords, TPP. And so what he can do is say, look, I know you guys, Democrats, some Republicans, don't like these deals or want these deals, but my base doesn't want these deals. So I'm going to deal with these deals. I'll let you have Paris, which isn't a change in policy, but you give me a concession. Or, all right, I won't cancel the Iran deal, but here's what you have to do. He's got nothing out of any of these policies. He just executes what he wants to execute, which in the case of Ben Smith's phrasing, is executing the hostages. That's good analysis. Here's my analysis. He's not a deal guy. He never was. 
the art of the deal. His art is non-payment and using the courts to get out of his end of the deal. He was never a deal maker. He was always a PR guy. And everything he's doing is to save face in the short term and maybe worry about the long term down the road. When he might find that having shot all of his bargaining chips, the only thing between him and the SWAT team is a wall, a thin wall that he didn't get the Mexicans to pay for. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, just producer, is so radioactive, her body actually admits radiation. It's true. Check it out. Get the Geiger counter. Just producer Dan Schrader, the guy's so basic, he's got a pH balance of 7.4. Again, this is demonstrable. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, his body is 57 to 61% water, meaning he is very likely to be Aquaman. The gist we actually share 96% of our DNA with a chimp, and yet I still negotiated for the less squeaky chair. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.